Welcome to episode 15 of the Welding Codex. This is a podcast for those who want to learn more about the technical side of welding. Welding codes, heat treatment, welding defects, metallurgy, and all the subjects that your high school welding instructor didn't have time to cover. In this episode, welding engineers and CWIs Peter Kinney and Gary Pace continue their review of AWS D1.1 structural welding code steel. This episode covers another portion of Clause 6. We're going to go into Part C, more in-depth acceptance criteria. Clause 6 inspection is a cornerstone of the AWS D1.1 code, and as such, it has a lot of material to cover, so it will take us a few episodes to cover the material. Anyhow, thanks for joining us. Note, this is going to cover 2015 and 2020 during the course of the episode, so we bounce back and forth. Before we get going, time for the advertisements. If you are on a budget and are looking for an affordable online training course for the AWS CWI Certified Weld Inspector Exam, visit train-eng.com. Train-eng.com. T-R-A-I-N minus sign E-N-G.com. And check out the online courses for Part A, General Knowledge, and Part B, the Hands-On Inspection. Train-eng.com also has some buffet-style options on the CWI review course. If you're strong in some subjects and not as strong in others, or if you only wanted to take metallurgy, go in there. For a few dollars, you can take that portion of the online course. That's an option. We have it set up buffet-style. We also have a CWI questions bonanza with about 1,000 questions, I think is the number on there with only practice questions. If you like what we are doing here on this podcast, feel free to make a PayPal donation on my website, texasweldingengineering.com. Also check out my YouTube channel and the material posted on that platform. We cover a lot of welding-related subjects on that platform. Also, Pete's not going to say this. His audio of what I'm going to say got messed up, so I had to redo it. I couldn't get in touch with him. Anyhow... The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in the Welding Codex by Peter Kinney are his personal opinions and do not reflect the official policy or positions of the American Welding Society or the AWS D1.1 Structural Steel Committee. Any content provided by our hosts in this podcast are their personal opinions and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything. The opinions are just the host's opinions on how their worldview of AWS D1.1 functions. All right, welcome to episode 15 of the Welding Codex. Pete and I are going to dive back into AWS D1.1 structural steel clause 6 in 2015, which is inspection, or it's clause 8 in the 2020 version. We left off on part C. We were talking about ultrasonic testing, 6.13, ultrasonic testing. And then 6.13.1, acceptance criteria for statically loaded non-tubular connections. You want, you going to run with this one, Pete? So the, the portion that we're in is yeah, it's either 6.13 or 8.13, depending on your edition. And we're, we're talking about acceptance criteria. And the, the first one we're handling right now is is a statically loaded non-tubular connection. So we think about this as your shapes, your plates. And in here, uh, it, it'll describe what tables you have to go to for the different kind of, uh, uh, like a web, the flange, uh, 
and what your scanning patterns that you need to look at. So this will this will push you around different areas in uh, in the the two different the different tables. The next section is 813.2 acceptance criteria for cyclically loaded non-tuber connections. So this would be the same type of connections, just we're we're loading them. The easy classical view of this would be like bridges. That's an easy one, but you can also have a dynamic. Uh, other kinds of structures as well. Big buildings do sway. You have uh, this might be applied to some sort of uh, other part that sees uh, sees motion of of some sort. Maybe it's a pier. Uh, it sees a lot of wave loading. And this one uh, breaks it down for uh, for tensile. You got to go to table eight uh, three, and then for compressive you go to eight two. And then um, one down farther to 81321 uh, indications. So this is walking us through how we have to rate them uh, with the DB ratings uh, and going through all of this. It'll it'll flip flop you around the different the different sections of of the of the code and moving down in the scanning. It'll this will talk about the different kind of scan plans you got to do. All this kind of information would generally be put into a procedure as opposed to someone just saying, hey, I do it by the book. Um, moving on, Gary, now we got part D, uh, which is a uh, general NDT procedures. All right. I was just going to chime in here. And like Pete was saying, in general, you don't use the code for any of this. You use it, but generally what you're going to do is you're going to have your NDE level three, whoever's writing your procedures, they're going to come in and they're going to pick out the appropriate parts of this code and the acceptance criteria and all of that. And then they're going to put it into a company document because like Pete said, you generally don't want to be making the call. You want to just open up a four or five or six page document that your company has written that says, okay, this is our NDE procedure for this. This is our PT procedure for these parts. And then it makes it a lot cleaner and easier, and you're not jumping back and forth. You've had somebody that's technically competent write you a procedure, condenses everything down into a really tight package that you can work with. That's basically it. It simplifies the reading of it and hopefully eliminate some gray areas because you're going to have like your level three writing this. So jumping into these procedures, the first one we'll deal with is RT. And this one is basically saying, hey, when you do RT, you've got to be in conformance with part E of the clause or part 10 or clause 10, part F, tubulars is, uh, is 10. So here it's walking us basically through uh, that. Then we go to UT and there it pushes us to part F. MT so MT, when it drives us to go with uh, Part C of the code, but it also wants it in conformance with ASTM E709. Uh, one thing to know about E709 is it's a guide spec. This is not in the 2015 or in the 2020, but in the future, it may have another uh, a replacement for E709 or one to be used in parallel, and that's E3024. That might be a real good document to look for some guidance. It's not required in either of these two editions, but it may be something that would help you a lot. It's a general uh, industry MT. Uh, I would, I would personally was writing a procedure. I would get that document 
read through it and base it off of the code and that and also familiar yourself with E709. Uh, PT, it's referencing us to Part C and also uh, ASTM E165. So those are what we need to look at for those different parts of the book to write your procedure in accordance with and or these additional ASTM standards. And when you go to these other, other sections, clauses or parts, you'll also see other ASTM standards being uh, being pulled in. Now that we've dealt with the procedural part, now we're going to deal with the people. For people, we're going under ASNT, and we're following their requirements under uh, ASNT, SNT, TC1, 1A. And we have a level 2 or a level 1 working underneath a level 2. You have to have uh, both of these certifications. You have to be done by a level 3. And there's some requirements for that level 3. Uh, you want Either you have to be certified by ASNT themselves or you could have successfully passed a written examination described in ASNT um, TC1A. And this is where when people will talk about you have an ASNT level three and then you have a corporate level three. And that's kind of the jargon that's commonly used between these two. And you'll normally for a company level two, uh, three, there'll be usually an outside consultant who is an ASNT level three that helps write the written practice and provides the examination to have a company level three. It's sometimes a, a way a lot of companies use to get around having to have an ASNT level three. All right. I'm going to stop you right there for one second and just backtrack and so we're throwing around SNT TC1A god I can't talk today SNT TC1A that's a mouthful so you'll see if you're going to be in welding for very long and you're going to cross paths that's just a all that document is is it's a recommended practice it's kind of like a guideline so it's telling you how to set up your um, system for non-destructive testing so if Pete and I start a company making widgets and we want to use um, eddy current which doesn't get covered here, but I'm just throwing it out there as a weird one. So if we want to use eddy current, it's going to tell us how many, it's going to help us guide our our setup of our testing of our widgets using eddy current. It's going to tell us how many hours we're going to need for our level one. We're going to, it's going to tell us how many hours of training we're going to need to get a guide to level two. It's going to have, tell us what our level three needs. It's not really a code book, but it's a recommended practice that kind of, tells you how to set up the rules of monopoly for your little game that you're going to be playing. And it's an industry standard, but it's just got a whole bunch of information on the different um, hours required for different, for the different NDT processes, such as, you know, ultrasonic testing is going to take way more hours than if you're going to use PT testing or MT or just strictly visual. So it gives you a recommended number of hours and kind of so you don't have to stumble through this and set it up from ground zero and reinvent the wheel. They give you they give you some cookie cutter direction that you can follow. I just wanted to throw that out there because a lot of times we get into and throwing these acronyms around. So I'm just backtracking and saying, okay, this is what SNTTC1A is and the general use of it and how it fits in with D11. It's not a code per se. It's just a book that helps you set up the rules to your personal monopoly. Correct. It's a 
glad glad you broke that broke that out, Gary. That's a good call. And another one uh, that you may also hear, depending on what industry you play in, uh, would also be CP 189, which is a let's say a, a stricter version of uh, SNT TC 1A. Okay, so we were back to certification of our level three. Yes. Uh, so there's one exemption uh, that we probably need to talk about for personnel performing NDT. So if you go to 614.63, we've got an exemption of QC1 requirements. Personnel performing NDT under the provisions of 614.6 not, need not be qualified and certified under the provisions of AWS QC1. That's telling us that you can have somebody doing your inspection that doesn't have a CWI. QC1 just lays out all the testing requirements and the levels of certification and endorsements and the functions of certified personnel. That's the document. QC1 is what lines out CWI. So you don't need to be a CWI to do inspections under AWS D1.1. And this is the, the little caveat in the code that says you don't have to do that. So just letting you know that okay you don't have to be a cwi to go in here and for your company and do inspections you can have other qualifications but you have to have documentation everything but you don't need to be a cwi correct yeah because it's all handled under the the asnt documentation uh, methodology uh, moving on to the next one, Gary, it's a uh, 615 or 815 um, extent of testing. So this this right here is they said visual is the only thing addressed in the code as that it's 100 percent. Everything else is by contract. Here we have three different options. We got full testing, partial testing and spot testing. Full testing is basically what it says. What do you think full testing is, Gary? Is that like doing one out of five? Nope. You do the whole meal deal. Full length, unless partial or spot length, spot testing is specified. So you got, if you're doing full testing, you got to do the full meal deal. That's right. And partial testing, just like uh, what it says, is you're only doing part of it. We're partial, and then we'll also we'll, we'll lump in what happens with spot testing too. Is you really need to detail out what you mean by partial testing. Uh, partial testing could be one out of five. 50%, 25%, but not only just you have, unless you have a, a lot of, unless you have all the same type of weld, you may want to, or actually you, you need to say, we're doing 50% of the butt welds at over one inch in thickness. We're doing 75% of fillet welds. We, we, you need to give the, the contractor guidance to what they're doing. And if I was the contractor and I got a bid that didn't have that in there, I would put in this is the way I interpret this partial testing. Because otherwise that, that helps prevent a lot of fighting in, in partial testing. Um, what, so for both uh, partial and spot, I was on a, on a job representing the owner and it was a it was kind of like a smokestack kind of looking structure, and we're like, and it required spot testing. And I was like, okay, we'll do the intersections where you had your girth weld and your long seam. Well, if you failed one, you had to do two more, and if you failed the, any of those two, you had to do. It was like I think it was either 
two or three or four more ended up basically driving it to a full inspection because at the law at the at that intersection we just kept popping to where we had to do the whole thing the contractor probably wouldn't have wanted to chosen that they would have probably chosen somewhere else but it was to uh up to the inspection agency to pick it but those are you really need to detail out where you're doing them on both on the engineering side and on the contractor side it prevents a lot of fighting well and getting into this pete and i both just clocked in significant amounts of time down here in houston um putting together skids and whatnot or various components that are going to go subsea well not every weld is the same you might have a handrail weld is not the same as a main structural weld so a lot of times you'll see and pete was talking about you know outlining your welds and giving them a a a category like a category a a category b a category c and it'll go through and say okay category a this is all our main line welds these need a hundred percent visual and they also need a hundred percent either volumetric or whatever and then 30 percent mag particle or something there's usually some criteria and then you go to you know a category b which is a less critical type of weld and then it'll have, okay, it needs 100% visual, but you only need to do 50% radiography. or And then by the time you get down to, like, let's say, a Category E, you're just talking about handrail welds. Okay, we're just going to look at those all visual. It's something that it's usually based on, okay, is if this thing breaks, how many guys are going to get killed? Or if this weld breaks, something catastrophic happens, is it going to punch a hole in the ship and sink the ship and you know, just all kinds of catastrophic stuff. So handrail weld breaks, nah, it's not the end of the world. But if it's a main lifting member or some kind of component like that, yeah, you probably want to hit it with a couple of different variations of non-destructive testing, whatever the engineer calls out. But usually this is in a side document that says, okay, this is A category, this is a B category, this is a C category. So a lot of this stuff doesn't you're not generally looking into the code. You have another document that was built off of cherry-picked sections out of the code that are applicable to whatever you're building. And the engineers and the NDE people generally come up with those. Yeah, good good point. Um, and one uh, one more thing about partial testing, and this, uh, this dinged me pretty bad on a job. The partial testing was based off of, it was a percentage of how many welds the welder made. Well... I was running, we were running 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and it was big, heavy, uh, two, three inches thick. So I had multiple welders welding on the same part. So I had a whole lot more inspection because it wasn't one welder made that part. It was three folks made that. And the, to catch the percentages, I was x-raying three people's thing instead of just one. So that was a, a lesson learned there. If you have one person do the whole thing, it definitely simplify your percentages. Yeah, and you get into this, you know, percentages and did I shoot enough x-rays of this guy's, you know, the welds he's made. And a lot of this, generally, I haven't had much issue with it on the D11 kind of work, but where you'll run into that is piping, you know, piping and then, uh, you know, pressure vessel kind of work is where I've seen it. And it gets a little hairier where you got to track okay, that guy's made seven welds, I got to shoot three of them or whatever your percentages come out to. 
something to keep track of definitely and it can definitely bite you in the ass and it can definitely cost you a lot of money if you have to go back and reshoot things especially with x-ray that's a very x-ray and ultrasonic you can really rack up a bill with those guys pretty quick shooting things two or three times exactly and uh one one last little story on partial testing there was a I was helping the the fabricator on this. The specification said 10% of welds. Is that 10% of length or 10% of number? There was basically two welds on the job, 40-foot long fillet welds or 6-inch long fillet welds. What are we doing the percentage of? Number or length? That was a uh, that was a little sticky of a situation. Oh, yeah. You can, like I said, well, and I was on a job where – the issue came in where we didn't have one point of contact with who was supposed to be shooting the, shooting the x-rays. And so some things we'd get back, they'd come in and shoot the same thing three times because our level three was telling them. And then a gallon purchasing was telling them and a foreman was telling them. And then a guy came in from corporate and he just lost his mind and was like, why are you guys doing it this way? And yeah, there's a lot of ways you can lose money if you don't keep track of this NDE thing. So Exactly. So we now we're moving over to part E, radiographic testing. So this this section here will start to walk us through how we perform the actual RT of the welds and butt joints. This is what this in the following section, uh, eight seventeen or or six seventeen. This is where your procedure would really come from. Uh, these these uh, sections here. So there there are some significant changes between uh, the 2015 and the 20 uh, uh, 20 code on on 816. And what it mainly uh, discusses here is is the, the ASTMs that you're looking for that you'll need to follow. Um, th- these are the same between the two editions as ASTM E. 94, which is the standard guide for radiographic examination using industrial radiographic film. That's a lot to say. And ASTM E1032, radiographic examination of weldments using industrial x-ray film. One unique curiosity thing that I have found in, uh, in my days is the number of the ASTM will stay the same. However, the name may actually change a little bit between years. So... The, but the changes that I, that I wanted to let folks know about is digital radiography uh, really comes out in the 2020 version as it's an allowed uh, methodology. There's, uh, there's different things you have to follow with your what kind of uh, cassettes you're using instead of using film. You're uh, using either uh, compute, computed radiography using um, like a phosphor plate, which could be also something like as a SIP, or uh, direct radiography using a digital detector array. It really goes into, into this and how you have to comply with it, how you have to store your film, or excuse me, you don't have film, but you have images, how you have to store images so they can't be doctored up. It goes a really deep dive into that. And I think we may almost do like another podcast just centered around RT and UT in the future, and that would definitely be where we'd go farther and farther into it. Um, 816.2 is variations, and these are things that you can vary when you have agreement between the contractor and the owner. And some of these real quick is like RT of fillet welds. That's not really a common thing that's done or T-joints. 
um, changing of SORF to film distance. You really need to walk, work through the engineer and the owner on any of these kind of changes that you need to do uh, for maybe some kind of weird uh, situation. Moving down to either 617 or 817 where we got RT procedures. I said this is where we would be taking this information and regurgitating it into a, a procedure that's readable by an individual in the field. Code language normally is not something that's easily read or followed as a step-by-step recipe type uh, application. So on, on the first one, 8171 uh, procedures, here we're talking about both radiographic and digital images. So you have to use a single source of uh, X-ray or gamma, and it walks through how we're going to use our IQIs, either like a hole or a wire. Uh, it references a lot of different um, sections and tables, and this is all the stuff we got to follow to be able to make the 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 shot. Tabs, that's another thing. So here, Gary, where Gary was talking about NDT crews can be expensive. So here's things to make sure that you have done before they show up. Well tabs, you got to remove them prior to RT unless it's approved by the engineer. So you want to make sure that those are gone, they're cleaned up, they're ground nice and shiny and bright. That's something that you don't want the crew standing around waiting on your on your guys to, to make those disappear. Uh, steel backing, uh, there's it has to be removed, but there's some provisions where it can stay and you have to grind and you have to do some grinding so make sure you understand this on when on when it's required to be removed and when it's required when it's allowed to stay in place that's uh, that's another one you don't want all of a sudden x-ray crew to show up and you got to remove 20 feet of backing material i would discuss this if it is allowed to stay make sure the rt crew knows that ahead of time uh, weld reinforcement this one's also where it it allows a, a maximum amount uh, on it and how you have to deal with um, the IQIs on getting your total thickness. This will walk us through how we have to deal with reinforcement. The type of film, foil screens. You cannot use fluorescent screens. Those are not permitted. So make sure that if you're doing RT or you're contracting it out that they're not doing that. The Another big change is geometric unsharpness. So here there's quite a bit of rewording that occurred and a change in the, a little bit change in how the presentation of the, of the equation from the 2015 to the 2020. And that, that's in uh, 8.17.5.1. Limitations, how it's presented is also changed uh, from the 2015 to the 2020. And it's, uh, it's a nice little table that we can follow. And the, the remaining portion of this is really just walking through how we deal with our procedure where we put IQIs, our technique for putting the film or overlapping film, making sure that we are handling backscatter, and you got your little little letter B on the back to, on your uh, on your film. And what the the lead B is for is for backscatter. And if the letter B image appears in the radiograph, uh, it's unacceptable. What that means is whenever you're shooting through you're getting what's called backscatter. You're getting it reflected off of, let's say, the surface behind it. And you may kind of, I don't want to call it a double image, but you may it may change the way your image looks. Um, so there's no B for uh, for bathroom there. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not 
RT guy at all. So know little bits about it, but haven't done a bunch of it. Try not to put your head between the, the camera and the, uh, the film. That's always yeah. a good thing to do. Yeah, I see that magenta tape, and I run the other direction. Exactly. That's something that we uh, we did kind of skip over with safety requirements. That was up in there. But the crew will show up, and they'll set up a, a perimeter of, of of a safe distance. And, and that's something you really got to respect. Uh, I know I've heard horror stories of people feeling they're because they were the – shop foreman or the owner they could just walk right on through the barrier while uh shots are getting taken and uh, gamma or x-ray i mean these are things that really can um can mess you up so really be careful on the the safety side of it well and they throw up that magenta tape it's they throw that tape up there they're not throwing it up there to keep you out just so they have a a nice quiet work zone. I mean, maybe that has something to do with it, but no, it's a, it's an NRC. Hey, we got to keep people from getting in here and getting an unhealthy dose of radiation, be it gamma or x-ray or, you know, whatever it's, it's to keep you out and it's your safety. So, and a lot of times, you know, the x-ray crews will come in at night. So, but it gets back to like Pete was saying, you know, removal of backing or, tabs or whatever a lot of times you might not even have a welder there you know and then the x-ray crew comes in no we we couldn't get to it because this this and this it wasn't smooth enough it wasn't ground we couldn't get our film to it whatever we'll be back tomorrow night after you guys fix everything so you here's your bill yeah here's your bill we were here you didn't have it ready for us so you can chew through a lot of money that's right Uh, quality of radiographic film and digital image this is something that's important so in the, it's very similar between the two. Uh, there's been some wordsmithing in there. But in the 2020, it's all radiographic film and digital images shall be free from imperfections and artifacts to the extent that they cannot mask or be confused with the image of any discontinuity in the area of interest in the radiograph. So what this is saying is... It's best to have a pristine shot on your on your film. But if we have a scratch like in the corner where it doesn't really matter, that's allowed. If we have a scratch right down the middle of the weld, what do you think, Gary? Can we use that one? Nope. Not not as far as I'm concerned. You need to you need to redo that one. Well, and here's like um, from the 2015 version. All radiographs shall be free of mechanical, chemical, or other blemishes to the extent that they cannot mask or be confused with the image of any discontinuity in the interest of the radiograph. Such blemishes include, but not limited to, the following. Fogging, processing defects such as streaks, watermarks, or chemical stains, scratches, finger marks, crimps, dirtiness, static marks, smudges, or tears, loss of detail due to poor screen to film contact, false indications due to defective screens or internal faults. So no, if it if your film's messed up and there's something questionable on there, you either need to reshoot it or reject it. So exactly. And and on that list, uh, the 2020 adds two things. One, it adds to number five, a SIP or uh, DDAs, uh, and then number six is artifacts due to non-functional pixels. So that would be if your 
monitor that you're inspecting these uh, digital R, uh, x-rays with, it needs to work. I mean, you can't have like, well, my screen doesn't work there, so uh, you, you got to size it and move this around. No, you, you need to have your uh, your your monitor working properly, and you're also on, on your you can't have issues with your with your film there with your uh, your digital film uh, where where it's not receiving a and showing a picture of that location if part of that part of the the cassette doesn't work of the digital cassette. Right. Okay. So six seventeen eleven density limitations. Do we want to cover that? So we're gonna. Like I said, I think in the future we need to do a serious dive where you can hear us for a couple hours just on RT. So we have density limitations uh, on it that the film has to be a minimum and a maximum, uh, depending on the different kinds. If it's a single exposure, and also with if it's, it's like gamma, these all this type of information needs to be included in the procedure. Because, like as I said before, this is not easy reading for a technician out there in the field to try to follow it. The next one moving down, uh, we have we have an equation for for density for your greater graphic density in the film. Beyond that, we have transitions, and what we what we mean here by transitions is going from thick to thin, and how we have to look at starting to address this. Uh, this is com- a big change also from on this next one, which is digital image sensitivity to range. The 2015 code, I do not believe, has that at all. So this is a new one that's put in here. If you're dealing with digital, you need to know about this. If you're still using film, uh, you don't. Uh, identification marks. So this is walking us through how do we got to identify the location of where of where it's taken. And this is by like lead numbers, letters, or both. This needs to be in your uh, procedure. If there's any information that any like unique information, that would be a good place to put it on here. And normally, that what you need to have on here is the contract identification, initials of the RT company, initials of, of the fabricator or the shop, a date. If this was a, a, a weld repair, a lot of people use R1, R2, R3. And for digital information, uh, that has to be added as text on the processed image for a lot of it. So this is another one that it needs to be identified in your procedure. Edge blocks, this is where when you're dealing with uh, a groove weld. So you've eliminated your runoff tabs and you replace them now with edge blocks. There's thickness ranges that we do uh, use them with, or minimum. So, just like I said, another thing handled in our procedure. Uh, linear reference comparators. This is a new 2020 thing, and this is dealing with digital for either your SIPs or your DDAs uh, to make sure that they're uh, that everything's good there with um, when, uh, with the interpretation of the image. So, last thing we're moving on to is 818 examination report and depth. Disposition of radiographs. So here, this is for for film radiography. How do we how how are we looking at these to be able to read them? You need to have a viewer, and normally you have a viewer. Um, I don't know if you ever seen them. They're usually a couple feet long. They got three or four bulbs in them, really bright um, in a dark room. Try not to flash yourself with them. Here's one thing where subdued light. 
let's be grown-ups about this one and make sure that it's dark enough to be able to read the film because you're what you're trying to really do is see the contrast of the film with the light behind it but if you're in a lighted room it's you lo- you lose some of that uh the difference in the contrast digital radiography this is also a uh, a new part in the 2020 version uh this where it's talking about your the, the station monitor it has to have a certain display resolution and a pixel count that's equal to or greater than the pixel count of the direct imaging plate. So what that basically means is if your image count on your or your pixel count is 100 on your plate, your monitor needs to be equal to or larger than that. You can't have 100 on the plate and 50 on your monitor. You could have the reverse, 50 on the plate and 100 on your monitor. Uh, Reports, um, you need to include all the different assorted either film digital images and normally i will also see some written record of the interpretation of each one of those there may be some notes on it like scattered porosity acceptable what this also helps is if someone comes behind for whatever reason and is like hey they didn't see that uh, or or something might have been borderline acceptable Someone else may come and read We Are Human and measure it a little bigger than they did. But if you flag it out or you look to bring attention that you actually acknowledged it and looked at it, it helps in a down-the-road type situation. Got any thoughts on that, Gary? Want to expand on it? Well, in reports, it's like, you know, here's what it says. It's, Hey, well, before a weld subject to the RT by the contractor owner is accepted, all of the radiographs, including any that show unacceptable quality prior to repair and a report interpreting them shall be submitted to the verification inspector, to the third-party guy. So you're putting together a paperwork package. You can't just throw a stack of radiographs at the third-party guy and say, yeah, have at it, man. You dig through this. We'll talk to you later. No, generally you hand them a report and it tells them, okay, I had this one failed we fixed it here's the se- here's the first radiograph we shot on it here's the second radiograph after we repaired it so usually you put together a grown up looking report on this that says all right we we did this and this or okay we got a little spot of porosity right here i looked at it it's acceptable we didn't fix it because it's acceptable under this part of the code or this and this so you go through and you do as much documentation as possible on this stuff to to make it easier for the next guy coming along. So if I'm doing it and then I'm sending it down the road to Pete, I don't want Pete digging through all of this and um, trying to figure out what's going on. Although I did get sent to a job one time and all I did was go to a job and dig through radiographs. And I'm not a super radiograph guy, but I went through them all and there was a bunch where there was like bolts welded up in there and, you know, welding rods. And I mean, it was just, and I was like, how did you guys not, I was the owner's engineer on that one. And I, I didn't confront the NDE guy. I just sent it back through my, my customer, my client. And I said, well, these are the questions I would ask them. How'd they miss this on this radiograph? Why didn't they find this? Why didn't they find this? You know, and I wrote up a little report and said, these are the things you need to look at. So if you're the NDE person on this, you need to put together reports that are legible, you know, so there's no way it's going to come back on you 
and somebody's going to question your work because it does happen. Sometimes somebody will pay, you know, a consultant or whatever. Hey, man, we're having issues with this. And somebody will come in and, like I said, I'm not a super NDE expert, but I, I know enough to know that, hey, this is not right. You know, I shouldn't be looking in here and seeing what where the welders welded over a welding rod in a V groove. You know what I mean? Just because they wanted to get out of there quicker or, you know, a bolt in there, you know, or some some other material just to make it their their weld times quicker exactly and also a lot of times with the report you have enough information in there that someone else can repeat your work you show them the technique that you use normally i see there's like a lot of little pictures of how you can put the film and the source and there's a little check box and you check which one you used and you have the time and the the distance and type of film, everything that you can that someone else could recreate it if if it was called into question. 618.3, record retentions or archiving. Um, a full set of radiographs for weld subject RT by the contractor for the owner, including any that show unacceptable quality prior to the repair shall be delivered to the owner upon completion of the work. The contractor's obligation to retain the radiographs shall cease upon delivery of, the, of this to the owner or one full year after the completion of the contractor's work provided the owner is given prior written notice. So Gary, does that mean uh, if I got a storm for a year, can I just like throw them on the table or something? Or do I have to do, I mean, do I have to really take care of these things? Yeah, you got to take care of them. You probably want to, if paperwork's not your thing, you probably want to go out there and poach a, an employee that's used to doing, um, I would say, medical records or something, somebody that's got pretty solid game. They don't necessarily have to be a welding person or a construction person, but get yourself a paperwork person, get them some boxes, tell them what they need to do. You put all this stuff in a box or multiple boxes, put it in a, uh, in a climate-controlled situation where it's not going to melt or get rained on or the birds get to it or the mice or the rats and you stash it on delivery of the full set to the owner or a full year after the completion of the contractor's work provided the owner has given prior written notice. So you hold on to it for a year, two years, put it in a archive somewhere, hold on to it. Either that or you give the owner the full set and you move on about your business. Exactly. And that's one thing we got to do with uh, film. Um, is we it'll fog up it'll it'll turn nasty if you just leave it in shop type conditions it needs to be in climate controlled where it's it's not gonna um, suffer any of those from that list that we just read a little while earlier about like fogging and creases and and uh, whatnot and scratches so we take care of it this is a an expansion uh, from the 2020. So we got radiographic digital images. So we need to make sure that these are stored as well uh, for for basically the same purpose, retrieval, retrieval at a later date. And it walks through all the different information that you're required to have this in for future uh, for future uh, access. Yeah, generally this for structural stuff, they're obvious. They're not saying hold on to this stuff for ten years or you know super long periods of time. Okay, you've got it done. Stash it for a year. Give the owner a copy. 
and you're done. You're out. So let, that's probably the easiest route to go is to give them the full copy and do, do a turnover and, you know, get a lot of signatures that you it was delivered to them and go on about your business. Exactly. All right. That seems like a reasonable place to slice this out and we'll end this episode and we'll take up the conversation next time. Thanks for listening. Hope this podcast was worth listening to. We're going to have more content coming out. Also, if you want to shoot me an email, gpacex at gmail.com. Give me some ideas or maybe there's some questions that you'd like me and Pete or me and Joel to answer in regards to welding, welding codes, filler material, or any other material joining question that you might think we have a shot in hell of answering. Anyways, thanks for listening. Take care. Pace out.